You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Hey there, Redemption. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, uh, I want to be quick with the announcements as our kiddos make their way back to Kids Church. Uh, they have no air conditioning. <laughs> and so I promise them they're going to be fine. They'll, they're resilient. They bounce back. They'll be good. And so it's working. It's just not super cold back there like it is in here. Um, so I'm going to try and rush through some things, and the announcements is one of them. You can go to redemptionhou.com slash today in order to learn more about some of the things that are going on. We've got a happy hour coming up um, this next week. We've got a membership class coming up here in a couple weeks um, and some exciting stuff going on, so check that out. Um, so I want to dive right into our new series uh, this week. Um, I'm, I'm struck... This morning, in uh, it's just been a heavy couple of hours for me, and I'm reminded that uh, prayer is right an obvious and important life uh, or important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like if if all of this is really truly about our relationship with God, if it's really truly about us connecting with the God of the universe through the work of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then prayer is like the thing. It is the activity of our encounter and our relationship with God. And yet time and time and time again, um, I think if we were to do like a survey, hey, uh, rate your prayer life on a scale of one to 10, um, maybe a few of you would put a 10. Um, if that's you, the door's right there. We'll see you later. See you next week. Just kidding, of course. Uh, most of us would say, hey, I struggle to pray. In fact, one of my very earliest experiences here at Redemption um, several years ago as we got involved in our hub group, week after week after week, we would confess and lament over the fact that, man, like prayer is just hard. It's work. It's, uh, it's I, I want to pray more than I do. And when I pray, I want prayer to be more robust than it is. We struggle to pray. And so we're starting a new series, and over the next four weeks, I want us to use the Psalms to maybe inspire and direct and inform how we can be uh, like living into this life of prayer. And I have basically two, two things I want to accomplish with this. One, I want us to have a real vision of prayer. I want to stir our imaginations and our souls towards like, wait, like struggle is like okay if that's where I'm at, but it's not good enough. I want to not just go, ah, well, that's just how it is. I want to like actually move 
forward and try and like dive deeper into this thing called prayer. But I don't want to just leave it in the imagination. I don't want to just leave it with a desire. I want to also give us some real practical ways forward. How can we begin to step into new rhythms and new routines that could really regularly help us live lives of prayer? We're going to use the Psalms to do that. And so this morning, I'm going to break our sermon up into two main parts. The first part, I want to talk to us about, wait, why are we using the Psalms? Why not just, hey, let's pray, and like, here's three steps to better prayer. And then two, I want to insist on a starting point for our prayer, that I want to make the case, our prayer has to start here. And if it doesn't start here, chances are it's going to go off somewhere weird or uninspiring or unhelpful. And in all of this, we are wrestling with this question. Is God a reality? Right? Is, is God something that I have to grapple with in my day-to-day life? Is, is God something or someone that interferes in the affairs of the world, more particularly in the affairs of my world? When I'm grieving, is, is God somehow able to enter into that grief? When I'm struggling with real temptation, is God somehow able to, to bolster me in that struggle and comfort me when I fail, when I'm sick and uh, struggling to find health and life? Is God there for me? Does God actually matter? This is the question of prayer. So why the Psalms? It's the question that they, uh, or it's this question that they help answer, and the Psalms remind us that prayer is not about doing and getting, that prayer is about being and becoming, right? So we are, we live in a world where most of us are all about productivity, uh, and most of us are all about acquiring, and so that kind of mindset, right, and it's nobody's fault, this isn't a judgment, this isn't me saying, well, you need to not be so productive and you do not want so much stuff, but this is just the life and the world that we live in. But what that's done is it's infected our understanding of what prayer is. And so prayer is now about being productive. And prayer is about getting And so when I pray, I ask God for stuff, or I pray so that God is pleased with me, or I pray so that God will do something for me, and those things are fine. We should absolutely pray those things to God, but if that's all we're ever praying, we are missing a large portion of what it means to live a life of prayer. The Psalms were Israel's hymn book. They were the songs and the prayers of the people of God for hundreds, if not a thousand years-ish, depending on how you want to, don't check my math, never check my math, because my math's always wrong, you can ask Gabby about that, where was I going with this, all right, so if you go and you look in the Psalms, and you look for like, hey, uh, I don't know, my oxen is sick, can you help heal my oxen, like you're you're not going to find that type of prayer very much in the Psalms, So the Psalms, prayer is never a good luck charm or some ritual that gets us what we want or what we need, but rather prayer is being with God. It's responding to God. 
It's looking to the God who has assured us that he will provide everything we need, whether we pray for it or not. Because of this, there's a rich history of praying the Psalms, right? Israel prayed the Psalms, so much so that they would have required um, children to learn and memorize big chunks of the scriptures, and the Psalms were a big part of this. And so Jesus prayed the Psalms. But he didn't just pray the Psalms as in we think of it, where you would show up to church, you would open up some sort of hymn book, and you would like recite. No, no, they, that, that didn't exist. There were not books, right? The printing press was not a thing. If you'll take out your scrolls and turn with me, no, 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 that's not how it worked. You had them all memorized. And like, I think about the richness. I was talking to Gabby about this um, Gabby's my wife, for those of y'all that don't know that's who that person is that I keep referencing. I was talking to Gabby about this, and I was like, I would give, like, a lot, a substantial amount of money, maybe, like, a limb or a finger. Like, I don't know. I would give a lot to be able to just somehow Matrix-style plug me in and have all of the Psalms now in my head. When Jesus sneaks off to pray, you can rest assured that so much of what he is praying are these Psalms. I imagine Jesus and the disciples going from place to place in their journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. They would have sung like so many of the other pilgrims sung the Psalms of Ascent. And Jesus leading them in these prayers together. It's just a powerful image. And then the church picks up this practice and through the ages and through the centuries, it's the Psalms that the church goes to to pray from monks and monasteries that wake up at two in the morning to go and gather in the sanctuary and pray the Psalms together, to churches all over Houston right now this morning that are together reciting and praying Psalms. This is a rich history, a rich tradition. So here at Redemption Church, I think, right, because we have, um, right, y'all are an intelligent bunch, you're good looking too, But because of our, like, propensity for, like, information, our tendency to want to learn more, like, our eagerness and our curiosity, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of those things. But I think sometimes we enjoy talking about God more than we do talking to God. One of our biggest fears, and it's a constant conversation when we talk about our hub groups, is our hub groups cannot devolve into small groups that sit around and pontificate about what God may or may not be like. That, no, 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 this is a group where we ought to be encountering God together in prayer. I think we're afraid uh, to talk to God because it exposes so many of our vulnerabilities. It exposes so many of our doubts. It exposes so much about us and our, who we are that it can be hard. It's a real encounter. But the Psalms don't allow for us just to talk about God. They don't have time to sit around and wonder what God might be like. The world is too dark and too serious. Their enemies are too bloodthirsty and their God is too near to sit around and suggest what God might be like. No, these are prayers that begin with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're urgent. 
They are present, and they are spoken out of like the real, earthy, violent reality of living in this world. And so the Psalms are always going to be an answer to God. They are always an encounter. They're never keeping God at arm's length. And the Psalms are simultaneously God's words to us about God's self. So that as we are encountering the Psalms and we are praying the Psalms to God, God is also speaking back to us. I'll explain that more here in just a second. And this is the main thing that the Psalms teach us, and it's why we're turning to them for the next month. The Psalms remind us that prayer begins with God, not with us. The Psalms remind us that prayer begins with God, not with us. The starting place for prayer is that God is really actually alive and active and moving and at work, that he is knowable. And not just that he's knowable, that he has made his self known, that God has revealed God's self to us. So uh, yesterday, Saturdays are like donut mornings traditionally in my house, and if y'all saw Zoe here last week or if you followed me on Instagram and saw pictures of Zoe from here last week, she loves donuts, as all two-year-olds do. Um, and so we were on our way to go get some donuts yesterday. One of my daughter's proclivities right now is she wants to listen to School Bus. Uh, what School Bus is, is this horrifying song from Coco Melon called Wheels on the Bus. It's the Wheels on the Bus Go Round and Round song that you all know and love, except it's like the worst possible version of it. And so I'm like, anything but this. We've listened to it, I don't know, 107 times this week. Again, don't check my math. We listen to it a lot. And so I'm like, I need to get her to listen to anything other than this. And I can't remember how, but something led me down this weird Spotify rabbit hole. And I ended up turning on a song that I have not heard in, uh, I don't know, almost five years or so. And that was Chance the Rapper's How Great. Right? And I put it on because it's like, oh, I haven't heard this in a while. I can't even remember what it is even like. I'm going to put it on, and maybe that'll make her Zoe. I found out that my daughter loves gospel music, which makes me happy and my soul sing. Uh, she was singing and clapping. It was great and much better than Coco Melon. But as I'm listening to how great, um, I'm suddenly struck by like, oh, yes, this is a perfect example of the Psalms. Like, this is where they all start. This is prayer right here in this song. And if you haven't heard it, it's about five and a half minutes. And the first three minutes of the song is the refrain from the choir. There's no music. It's just voices. How great is our God? How great is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God? The name above all names. Worthy of all praise, my heart will sing. How great is my God. And it repeats over and over and over. They can't stop singing it. It's so true, and it's so right, and it's so beautiful. They just have to keep going. They have to keep going. Finally, after about three-ish minutes of this, um, you finally get chance, and I can't remember who the other person is that's on the, the song there, but they jump in, and they begin to like do their part and it's a, a mix, a variation of like my faith and my messy life and the reality of being a musician, and right? And it's prayer. It's words to God, about God, and even sometimes words on behalf of God. 
And this is exactly what the Psalms do. The Psalms stand on the reality that God is great. And so in the Psalms, prayer is a received language. It's not our groping about in the dark trying to find God. It's not our search or reaching out for God. It's a response to the God who has already reached out to us. It's our ongoing, rooted, knowing relationship with God. And so prayer is a response to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a response to the God of the Exodus, the God who provided in the desert. Prayer is a response to the God of David. It's a response to the God of the cross, the God who has made God's self known to us. And so prayer begins with a God who has made God's self known. We don't have to grope around. We don't have to search around. We don't have to go find God out there or in here. God has revealed God's self to us. And so the Psalms are not searching to expound on theological rumination or explore ideas about like a hypothetical God. The Psalms respond to the God who has made God's self known to the people of Israel. And so they take for us And they expose and they sharpen what it means to be a human living in relationship with God in the reality of the world that we live in. And in them, we're trained. These are prayers that train us how to pray. They give us language when we don't have it. They give us words when we can't find the words. They say startling and surprising things. And Jesus himself, I think this is the most interesting part, and if you miss anything else about what I say this morning, I think this is the piece that if you take this away, it'll be worth uh, however many minutes I spend doing this. Jesus himself says, hey, look, you, you search the Old Testament, you search the scriptures because you think that you have life in them, but they all testify to me, right? He says this in John to the Pharisees. Jesus' point is that, hey, the entire Old Testament, every single bit of it, every single piece of it is about me. And so in this way, Jesus himself is meeting us in these words. These are the words of Jesus to us and our words of Jesus back to him. And so we're going to start in Psalm 82, right? We get basically four shots at this. We're not going to spend the next 150 weeks looking at each psalm. Um, we're going to start in Psalm 82. Uh, psalm 82 is a weird psalm, and it's weird uh, intentionally. Like, I wanted, I wanted to pick a weird psalm to kind of shake us a little bit, and I wanted to pick a weird psalm to maybe confront us a little bit. Don't worry. We'll be in Psalm 23 next week. That's the old familiar one. We're like, oh, whew, we're home. This is comfortable. So Psalm 82 stands as the centerpiece of who the God of the Psalms is. Like unashamedly, unabashedly, here I am, world. This is me, like it or not. And so Psalm 82 finds itself right at the same time standing alone as like being this weird, unique psalm like no other psalms really like, but then also being like the foundation on which all the other psalms stand. It it, it makes this claim about God that you will find in every other psalm. And so let's look at it. We got some weird stuff to look at. Uh, I like weird stuff in the Bible. Uh, I guess that makes me a Bible nerd, but you already knew that. 
Verse 1, God stands in the assembly of El. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. He says, how long will you make unjust legal decisions and show favoritism to the wicked? Selah. Uh, that word selah there is, honestly, we don't know exactly what it means. No one's sure. But it's most likely like a musical note because, right, they're singing these. It would have been like some sort of pause or something like that. If you ever see that, there you go. That's what it is, we think. So this psalm opens in verse 1 uh, in a courtroom, but this is not your courtroom. This is a heavenly courtroom, and we see God standing among the assembly of L, and you're like, what the L is that? <laughs> I got a hearty chuckle there. That's good. So, right, uh, depending on your translation, and, and if you've got a Bible, I would actually encourage you to get it out and look at it. This is one of those verses where you're like, no, no, track with me on this, because this is wild, and most of your English Bibles are like, ah, oh, this is weird, we don't know how to do this, uh, we're going to translate it in a ver variety of different weird ways. So, uh, the, the Hebrew word, and I swear, y'all, I promise, I will not do this to you often, but go with me here, okay? So the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Elohim is also the Hebrew word for gods, plural. I would like kind of liken it to the way we use God, capital G, and the way we use God, like lowercase g, in the sense that like one is like, we all know we're talking about God, like the God, and the other one is like God, like some other type of God. They would use Elohim the same way. So Elohim can at on one hand, be referring to like Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Exodus, the God of, right? And on the other hand, Elohim can also be the same word that they're using to talk about like idols. And the psalm uses both words here. And it's interchangeable. And that's one of the poetic brilliances of it. And so we see God, that's Elohim, standing in the assembly of El. El is a Hebrew word for like God, as in singular God, El, right? Elohim is plural, El is singular. But El, more importantly, became the name of the Canaanite God. And the way that they understood the world is there's the Canaanite God. It's kind of like Zeus is the God of all the other gods. Same kind of idea. El is the God over Cana, the land of Cana, which was the land that Israel went into and took over um, and, and they would have these other gods. Those other gods are the assembly or the council or various translations do weird stuff with this. And so like this is a clear mythological psalm. Like there's some strange, weird stuff going on. First is, wait, I thought there was only one God. Right? That's the big obvious one here. But think about this. What would idolatry be if the Hebrews really only believed there was one God? What do you think they're worshiping? What did you think they think they were worshiping? The question was never how many gods are there. The question was always which God is the God? Which God should I give my time and energy and money and allegiance to? They didn't care about how many there were. It was about which was the one. This psalm goes right at that. And so what does the God of Israel, capital G-O-D God, do? He rises up among the council. He's now standing over them, and he judges them. The point of the psalm is not, whoa, you got it wrong. There's only one God. No, no, no. The point of the psalm is it doesn't matter how many gods there are. There's only one God who's the God of the gods. And so what happens here is Yahweh, right, the God of Israel, 
takes over the divine world. Like this is a coup. The God of these Israelites over here just took down the God of the Canaanites and his entire assembly. He walked in and said, I'm the captain now. He walked in and said, that's my bike, punk. Like this is Yahweh taking over the world of the gods. But why? Because the gods weren't being gods. We'll get to that in a second. One of the things that happens here with some of the poetry, right, some of the, like, for us, it's very confusing, the Elohim, Elohim, like, God judges the gods. One of the things that's happening is, is the God of Israel is absorbing anything and everything that you thought the other gods were doing for you. So that, that God isn't just the God of the storm. Oh, he's most certainly the God of the storm. He's also the God of the sea. He's also the God of fertility, and he's also the God of your wars, and he's all, right? He is the God. Anything and everything you thought you were finding in all these other gods is now being absorbed up into him, and so he reigns over all things. If you want to see a perfect picture of this, very familiar story in the Bible. You all probably know it and love it. Um, David and Goliath. David, right, so Goliath the giant says, ah, you Israelites, y'all are dumb and so is your God. Well, David doesn't go, huh, little does he know, his Philistine God doesn't actually exist and my God actually does exist because there's only one God. No, 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 David goes, yes, the Philistines absolutely have a God. I absolutely have a God and my God is absolutely the God of your God. Let's go. And so they believed when they would do this, like, combat of honor or whatever it was called, like these two champions go to battle against each other, what they thought was happening, their theology was that their gods were doing battle together. And whoever came out on top, that was the god who was victorious. This is why David is praised. It's not because he was violent. It's not because he believed in only one god, when, right? It's because he believed that his god was the god of all the gods. Our prayer begins when we compose ourselves and we prepare ourselves to encounter the God who is supreme, the God who is above all things, the God who is above all other things that we might call gods, all powers and principalities and rulers, that we encounter the God who is above all in prayer. So whether in lament or confession or thanksgiving or praise, our prayer begins with, how great is our God. The psalm continues. Prayer begins with a God who is above everything, but what kind of God is this exactly? Check out verse 3. This is God speaking to the other gods. He's judging them. Defend the cause of the poor and the fatherless. Vindicate the oppressed and the suffering. Rescue the poor and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. And then he turns to the jury, so to speak, right? This is us, the reader. And God says, they neither know nor understand. They stumble around in the dark while all the foundations of the earth crumble Right, so there's something in verse 3 and 4 that's very important. Right? God is a God of justice. Absolutely a God of justice. 
and his condemnation of the other gods is not, hey, you don't uh, believe the right gospel or you've got, the ba- you've got bad theology. His condemnation of the other gods is you are allowing the world to turn into shambles. You are giving preferential treatment to the wicked and you're ignoring the weak and the vulnerable. In verse 5, he tells us that they don't know or understand, right? They're ignorant gods. That they stumble around in the dark, that they're blind gods. They, They can't see. The darkness overwhelms them. Think of so many of the passages in the psalm, in the prophets even. This is a God, we believe in a God who sees. We believe in a God who hears. We believe in a God who can actually do something about the injustice of the world. We don't believe in a God who's overcome by darkness. We believe in a God who ultimately overcomes darkness with light. And God's judgment strips them of power, and the gods, capital G, become lowercase g, gods. They become like humans. They become mortal. They become dying gods. In contrast to God's ignorance, our God is all-knowing. In response to stumbling in the dark, our God is light. We pray to a God who sees and hears and knows and is not subjected to darkness but overcomes darkness with light. John 1, right, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? When we think of, oh, Jesus is the Word, right? And absolutely, we should, yes. But more than that, John 1 testifies that Jesus is the light, That Jesus is the word, absolutely. But more often than word, the word light appears to describe Jesus. That this is not just a God who's now all-powerful and is off the rails and is domineering the earth. No, 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 this is a God of justice and light who sides with the weak and the vulnerable. That is very, very good news. This is a God who is active, alive, and powerful. And so prayer begins with a God who is alive, active, and powerful. And so last, we get to the the appeal. We get to the psalmist breaking into the psalm and actually saying something outside of this court scene in verse 8. Rise up, O God, and execute judgment on the earth, for you own all the nations. Right, this comes across uh, okay for us. But what we miss here is there's a a Hebrew imperative here, and Hebrew imperatives only work one way. Hebrew imperatives only go from the top down. No one down here tells someone up here what to do. They request, oh, might you perhaps give us what we need? But this is not a request. This is a command. You have the psalmist who is down here crying out to the God who is above all things, and they say, get up! Do something! If you're the God of justice, what's going on? And their faith, their prayer, their cry does not come out of their need, though they are very needy. The psalmist cries out, out of her faith. And she says, I know who you are, and I know what you do, and I know that you stand on the side of the weak and the vulnerable. Oh, Lord, I'm weak and I'm vulnerable. Get up. And from there, prayer bursts forth. 
And so now the weak appeal to the God on the side of the weak, and prayer begins with a God who is absolutely good. A God who actually really hears and responds. And so when we pray, we're not seeking God. We're responding to the God who has sought us. We're responding to the God who reveals and speaks, the God who has come to us in the person of Jesus. The one whose name is above all names, who is worthy of all praise, who is alive and active and powerful, who is good and who is just and who has assured us, I will take care of you. So our prayer begins by entering into the revealed reign of God, not just knowing about God, not just asking God for some stuff, but really enter into it, entrusting ourselves to it in a way that we're like banking on it. We're staking our lives on it. Like, God, if you don't come through for me, I got nothing else. There is no plan B. In a way that makes us cry, get up, God. Rise up. Get up. Do something. And from that place, we pray. We just start. There's no magic formula. There's no like, right? You got to do the thanks, right? And there's, or praise, I don't remember what it is. It's an acronym, and you do the thing, right? And that's fine. You can do that. It's a tool. But when we encounter the God who has revealed God's self to us, prayer bursts forth from our souls. And if we're struggling to encounter that God, go back to how he has revealed God's self to us and listen to the prayers of God's people in the Psalms. I'll close with this last illustration. Um, right, my daughter, again, two years old. She's wonderful, but she doesn't just know about me. In fact, she knows very little about me. My daughter couldn't tell you what kind of car I drive, though she's seen it. She can't tell you where I go when I leave each day. She can't tell you my middle name or my social security number. She can't tell you my address. Like, there are a lot of facts she doesn't know how old I am when I was right. There's a lot that she does not know about me. And yet she loves me. I hope. Right? How, how do I know? Because every day she longs to come and sit in my lap and just be. What if that's all prayer is? What if we could just crawl into the lap of the God who is, yes, mysterious and beyond our comprehension, and that we know we do not have all the facts and the data, and there's a lot we don't understand, and that is okay, right? We will always be a safe place for you to wrestle with a lot of those questions. But sometimes we just need to sit and be and trust that God is actually who God says God is. I think that's prayer. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you are good. I trust that you are actively working towards the good of this world, towards my good, towards the good of every person who's in here. Um, but I confess, I don't see it sometimes. I don't see it most of the time. I cling to you, the God who has revealed himself in the cross. I cling to you, the God who has revealed himself in the resurrection. I cling to you, the God who has overcome death with death and life.
We need you. Will you stir our souls? Will you meet us in our prayers? Will you delight us? Will you let us crawl into your lap and just be? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. Please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.